I'm Sam Bompus, and you're listening to Thought Starters. We're recording live from the pod, White City Place's very own recording studio. If you're listening to Thought Starters, simply hit subscribe and catch more episodes from my co-hosts, Liv Siddle, Emma Hote Almud, and Kemi Olivia. For this show, I really enjoyed talking to Bettina Pekeris Weisman. Bettina is a professor of consumer behaviour with research interests around exploration of new ways to understand consumer food preferences and motivations. The current research focuses on how tactile and visual sensory information in food packaging can influence consumer behaviour, thereby making it more sustainable. We talked about a lot of cross-modalities, so you might have heard of synesthesia when the senses interact with one another. Many artists claim to have it as a sort of privileged view, but actually everyone has a very remarkable degree of sensory interaction and crossover. I began by asking Bettina about how her work impacts our understanding of how humans see the world around us. Well, it's uh, if we think about uh, imagine machine learning and all these all these algorithms that are being uh, launched out there to be able to um, help us predict how we're going to respond to certain stimuli or events or uh, behaviors, um, and the fact that we need to train those those algorithms somehow. And the information that goes in there, this big data that everybody talks about, um, is based on the existing sensory signals and all the sensory uh, data that humans provide. Um, so in that sense, it does help um, advance our understanding because those predictions that are made uh, are very similar to actually how our brain works in reality. So in reality, our brain is not all the time processing all the sensory signals, but actually um, it has already a cascade of predictions working inside and it just reacts when something is not really responding to what we might expect. That's why we only get surprised or we only notice cer- certain um, stimuli when it does not match with what we were expecting of it. So in that sense, it is uh, contributing to our fundamental understanding about how the senses work. How can we make people be more sustainable through uh, cross-modality and design? Um, uh, that's a bit of a, a tricky question. So far, uh, when it comes to sustainable packaging, uh, you might only think about the, the what people see and what people touch. Uh, but there's um, certain cues that can be incorporated, such as certain perhaps, uh, perhaps that's more in the, in the premium domain, but certain orders of wood or... Uh, Others that are reminiscent of nature and uh, tactile properties that are also related to nature. And that is something that uh, people or currently consumers really tend to associate with sustainability or with naturalness. Um, but hopefully it's used in the proper way in the sense that real, more sustainable packaging uh, conveys that information and not completely unsustainable packaging uh, doing so on misleading consumers. So, so then, if the packaging is designed in the right way, then the consumer may be even better at um, recycling. Yeah, that, I mean, that there's right? um, that, that's completely right. There's there's certain uh, types of information that are understood by the consumer, even if they're not aware of it. Uh, color. Uh, uh, if when you hold something in your hands, the tactile properties. Uh, so those are 
uh, cues and information that are extracted without much processing. So they don't have to read a label, they don't have to uh, pay attention to the particular texts or logos that are presented, but those cues can help them say, oh, this is uh, an unusual um, tactile property and it reminds me of uh, some natural aspects or in general the notion of sustainability. Um, I'm going to directly throw it in the uh, organic uh, or compost facilities if the packaging is compostable. So we can use those cues which do not require so much processing for the consumer to behave in certain ways without, you know, in, in an automatic pilot, as we call it. With this, where do you think there are particularly valuable, exciting areas for us to uncover and explore? Well, there, there's many exciting areas within the fundamentals uh, of sensory uh, science or, or multisensory research. There's still a lot of to explore in terms of how um, our body reacts to sensory signals, how our body reacts to different types of expectations or surprise or deception or disappointment. Uh, and also there's a many interesting areas in the technological side. So how can uh, sensors be predicting? Uh, how can humans see or respond uh, even if there's no real product in front of us. What I was really keen on doing is almost taking a sensory grand tour with you, exploring the wonders of the senses. What is there to celebrate in each of the senses? My um, highlight of the senses would be their ability to uh, compensate for one another. So when we have lost um, olfaction, simply because imagine you had COVID or because you have some sight impairment or um, audition impairment, uh, how can the other senses pick up on that and how fast they're, they're able to learn to be able to compensate the, the lack of sensory information from it? Um, that, that helps us uh, navigating the environment around us. And uh, I think that that's... that's one of the most magical things about their their interaction. Would you prioritize one of the senses over the other? Because I know that you know, in an Aristotelian sense, we'd all say the vision is key. But you know, what's what's the best sense? The truth is that vision is quite powerful because it gives us information about uh, the, the the textual properties of something, and because we um, if we have normal um, vision. We have learned how things smell, how things taste, how things uh, feel like, and we have an assigned uh, visual signal to it. So in that sense, it, it does, uh, sorry for the pun, it does provide most of the information. And it's quite too key to predict uh, how other things, how, how other senses will, will be like no, when we see an object. Um, however, olfaction is very much linked to, to memory and to emotions. So I would not necessarily say that, although vision provides most of the sensory information, multisensory information, um, the other senses provide uh, an equally important role in how we experience things. I guess I'm, I'm quite interested because many people have tried to um, duplicate those uh, multisensory experiences, but digitally. Mm -hmm. 
have you seen anyone be successful? What do you think the key to success is with um, uh, creating digital experience? Yeah, uh, with regards to augmented reality or virtual reality, um, that is the the part of the experience that is most difficult to to put in in the system. So regarding uh, vision, they are building fantastic virtual environments. You can put orders, you can put uh, auditory cues, but that feeling of feedback, that haptic feedback, is of something that is soft and and smooth or something that is uh, rough, it's, it's being one of the most challenging um, inputs to provide in, in virtual reality. And, and have you seen anyone successfully do something with smell in, in the digital domain? How do you do How do you even start with that? Um, I think it's, uh, there's, there's uh, compounds that are very easily, uh, inserted in, in headsets or in the environment. Um, and those compounds do not need to be the real thing, no, because, um, yeah, it, they can be synthetically created or from other sources. Um, so in that sense, it's not so difficult to, to infuse smells in an environment. So I always, I always thought it's quite easy to get smells into the environment, but it's quite hard to get them out. Um, and you saw that with, uh, I believe, William Castle, who um, uh, did a, a show in Smell-O-Vision. So mm-hmm. it, it starts off and it's, it, it yeah. smells okay. Yeah, everyone's looking at a cinematic screen. Yeah, in, in terms of, in terms of, uh, of course, making a, a movie and making people smell what is happening in the movie, it's also... Um, one of the things that they're exploring currently. Um, but the idea uh, from what I've been uh, noticing is uh, making uh, the spectator wear some kind of helmet in which the, the smells are programmed um, along a, a well, visual clip. I think I think if you're going to be like really successful with it, you have, have to have those smells quite localized because um, we've all seen a, a lightning flash and heard mm-hmm. the thunder rolling several seconds later. Yeah. Uh, the speed of smell obviously is uh, a lot slower than the speed of uh, sound or the speed of light. Um, so I think I think there's this quite an interesting design challenge in there. So how do, how could you how could you have your uh, your favorite TV show that you're watching on your laptop emitting <laughs> smells as well? Would you even want to? Well, it's it's um, I don't know. If you want to smell everything that happens in in movies, no? Um, but I can imagine that. Uh, you do not need to reproduce all the smells that the main characters of a show, for instance, would smell. I think that um, the ideal use would be to use it to attract the spectator's view in certain direction. Uh, And also, um, odors are something that lag in the environment for a while. So how to control that, how to um, you know, uh, wash it out. That's one of the challenges also in the olfactory domain. You know, when they play with priming and they put different odors in the rooms, they really have to have these ventilators to make sure or these, uh, you know, um, extraction, uh, air extractors, so that then the next uh, odor can be infused in the environment. And at home, when when you're doing this with with people and you're putting them a movie and you you want to infuse them with with certain odors, they of course don't have all these extractors as we have in, in the laboratories. 
So then um, I would use them in, in a smart way only to attract the spectator's view in some points or to make mm. that extra uh, importance uh, of a particular smell. I was interested in terms of this. How, how do you go about, where do you find your, your inspiration? Um, and what, what, does, what, what, what role does creativity play? I think that um, when we think about the, the scientific method, um, perhaps the lay people, many people, or even my neighbors, when we t- talk, they might think, oh, she's a scientist. It's, it's a boring thing. Uh, you just do some measurements. And, um, but actually, my neighbors are creative. No? So <laughs> we, when we discuss, we actually have many things in common. So you do have to have a lot of, of sense of, of curiosity to be able to have interesting research questions and to know how to address those research questions to design an experiment. Um, so I think it's it, it, it all this all this cycle of theory, hypothesis, test, conclusions, on what leads to the next question. I think that that's a that, that cycle is something that creatives also experience in some way or the other. Um, and from where I get my creativity is uh, many different sources. Many times it's, uh, I'm in an academic environment, so many times it's the students themselves that uh, from their own thesis, they they do not know how to, to discuss a finding. And in my mind, I'm like, wow, that could be the next research question. Um so it, it's it's the more you talk with people, and even if they're not scientists, perhaps they're most naive people uh, that can give you the best ideas and, and observing, you know, the problems that are uh, currently in the environment or the issues in society, it's, it's very um, inspiring too. I'm Sam Bompas, and you're listening to Thought Starters. You talked a lot about curiosity. What are you What are you curious about at the moment? Um, perhaps uh, too many things. <laughs> so, of course, when one when one project finishes uh, and others start, uh, you still have many many questions in the middle. And I'm going to put you an example of, of a, um, a graduate student that was uh, in my lab. She she already uh, graduated, and um, her project was about. Uh, indeed how our body reacts towards certain combinations of, of stimuli and we used very very simple um uh taste stimuli and we wanted to know whether when people know what they're going to eat versus when they do not know so when they get surprised yeah. um do our bodily responses really react to it and in which ways and we were measuring particularly um, heart rate and skin conductance and those those are bodily responses that tend to activate in f- fight or flight reactions in situations sorry and um, so we we created all this set of experiments and showing images to people and it, it's we were amazed to see that it's not only a matter of of telling people now you're going to taste something unpleasant or now you're going to taste something pleasant or giving them information that matches or not with what actually we were giving them. And you might be thinking that we were torturing them, but we were not really <laughs> torturing them. Um, leads to 
to really different patterns of responses. And it is not only the the um, uh, unpleasantness of a stimulus that we know that we might taste. For instance, I don't know, when we go to another country and we see a drink that does not taste really good, but we have to, to consume it, imagine, in a, in a given context. Well, the way we tend to react to towards it, no? because we don't know if it's going to be poisonous or, or whether you know we're going to digest it properly or how we how is our body going to react to that. Um, but it was not only that those negative expectations, but also the the novelty factor, like suddenly experiencing something that we did not um, expect. And and are, when you're when you're researching something like this, do you do you think about the practical applications as well as you're as you're making discoveries? Do you think about well, how could this how could this apply to to regular people's lives or experience of dining? Uh, indeed, I mean it's not only about uh, fu- fundamental knowledge, which of course we need, um, but of course the logical question that comes after is how can this be applied or how is this good for society or how can these make people's lives more exciting so we um we do some studies that tend to be more realistic or more in in an applied setting and it's very complex because when we do these experiments in real life of course people are not only focused on what they're uh consuming but there's a myriad of other uh, factors that surround them and of course their own in their own environment uh, so then of course many of the effects we find tend to be diminished or, or lessened is that a bad thing not not really um, and it's very natural that that happens because yeah we have in our context we have we are in different mindsets um, we get distracted more easily um, but at least we know that what we're trying to uh, put out there or what we're trying to or the intervention we're trying to, to do uh, will not act in the opposite direction. So it would only help if it does, but it will not go in the opposite direction. So more research has to be done in, in real context and in, a, in more applied settings. But still, for the fundamental knowledge on how the senses work, I think that these, this research is very much needed. Does language have a role to play as well? Because I know I heard you, we're talking about texture and food texture. Um, you know, I, I you know I heard that that uh, some Asian language, just for example, uh, Japanese has about four hundred words for texture, whereas most European languages have about seventy words for texture. Does yeah. that have an, Does that does that? How does that have an impact? Um, well, uh, in many. Uh, languages the term flavor does not really exist um wow yeah so uh, at least in in spanish we would say gusto which is taste and and smell we have but not such thing as flavor and even in english language people say taste when they mean flavor Mm. Uh, so when they say uh orange taste or you know actually they mean they mean flavor um french also don't have this 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 term so when we do research is we need to specify what we mean so in terms of the combination of taste and smell and perhaps texture and vision um so in that case we have to be a bit more specific and many times the the uh the perception uh 
part depends on our ability to name what we identify. So many times mm. the naming is a part of our certainty that what we're tasting or we're experiencing um, is accurate. So it's, it's what we want to, to um, name or identify. So indeed, when we, you do this cross-cultural research, um, a country that has 400 words to refer to uh, textures uh, compared to countries that have much a more simplified verbatim, it's um, not easy to compare always. And then there is more qualitative research is needed. Yeah. So if we could, if we could make a, an expanded universal language of of food, you're saying we could even we could maybe perceive even more in in our dining experiences. Um. Yeah. Would that work? Yeah, and 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 on the other hand, there's there's uh, I worked in the past um, with some researchers that were trying to put that not in words but in shapes, and oh, wow. in um, what was it shapes? Uh, so there was this spiky shape that referred to something bitter or sour, and then smoother shapes were more linked to to sweet. But on the other hand, that's yeah, most of this research that pairs. Um, shapes or colors with, um, with with gustatory experiences are more linked to tastes, but flavor is much more complex. Um, so in that sense, there's still, uh, I guess that it's, it's a, a research route to explore. How can you communicate without words something that you feel? And that's something that the synesthetes perhaps are, are better at because they experience something and they can paint it or they can describe it in other ways beyond words. Where do you think there might be a, a new sort of breakthrough in, in the senses and how they, how they interact? I, I believe that, well, that, that's a really <laughs> tricky question. Um, uh, as we were mentioning before, perhaps um, perhaps mm. wearables that can enhance um, enhance or, or simply compensate. Uh, the other, well, already what some, some year ago, I, I um, read about these glasses that would make um, newly blind people see shadows, see um, um, shapes, so in that sense, it is something connected to the brain that can compensate for that lack of, of, of input. Um, but yeah, when we think about experiences and enhancing experiences, I guess that there will be many wearables around the corner that can enhance those, those things that we're currently already uh, feeling. This sounds like the science fiction world that I would love to inhabit. I had a, I had a pressing <laughs> question with this, which is... Uh-huh. If you're and I just went for an eye test, and if if your vision's failing, then you can correct it with glasses. If yep. your hearing isn't what it once was, um, or has been diminished, then then there's technology and wearables that can help you enhance your hearing. Um, is there anything, or could you can conceive of something that would boost your sense of um, taste or your sense of smell? What are, what are glasses for your nose? Yeah, um, I, I believe there there's uh, some uh, a Japanese group of researchers, if I'm not uh, wrong, that are developing these. Um, uh, it's not a chip, but a, but a, but a, a, a technological piece that um, can create artificial flavor. So it's it's not. I'm not sure if it's really compensating uh, uh, 
you know, when receptors um, uh, get damaged, uh, but actually being able to uh, stimulate them so that in your brain you could still perceive that you're experiencing that flavor. Um, but it's not my realm of research, but I know that there's um, things going on in this in these domain that um, via electric impulses, those receptors get stimulated. Um, and therefore in your brain, you would still be able to perceive that, that flavor as if you would have it from a food. Wow, this sounds this sounds incredible. If there was if there was an impossible piece of research or invention, or actually I'll open up, if you could uh-huh. if you could invent anything, what would it be? What would be your favorite invention? Um Wow, that's that's um Yeah, nobody asked me that question before. <laughs> To be honest, when we're when we're now in this last year talking to people that are miles away, and you really want to uh, express something you're feeling or certain emotions, I think it would be really cool to be able to make that other person experience what you're experiencing, and perhaps it's it's you know in some parallel universe also used to make people more empathic and and to understand how others are feeling too. Uh, and that could be also done through the senses. Bettina, thank you very, very much for your time. It's been a joy to speak, imagine with you. We've been a grand tour of the senses, the wonders of your own body, how they interrelate with one another, how you can be creative with them, and hopefully some sensory sensory experiences in your own home. Um, yeah. So thank you very, very much. I can't <laughs> wait my for, for our next olfactory and sensory adventure. Me neither. (laughs) It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on modern day culture from White City Place, West London's creative campus. Join our growing community by following at White City Place across Instagram, Facebook and more.